HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Brooklyn Slate Company, a manufacturer of slate cheese boards, coasters, and other fine items. For more information, visit brooklynslate.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Zach, Zach Gulper. But I want to call you Zach Dog, if you don't mind. Is, is that okay? Yes, I do know why. Um, but Zach Dog is, I am so, so lucky to live in the neighborhood I live in for many reasons. But most importantly, in the last few years, is Bien Quit. Um, it, it's this quaint little bakery that is more than quaint now. I mean, it's an establishment. It is a destination to a lot of people that travel. We're finally uh, able to pay our bills. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's going to be there for a bit longer, thankfully. Yeah. Um, but, Zach, you came from this kind of, I'm not going to say mistress, I can't even say that word, but you came from this, this upbringing where bread wasn't a thing of wonderment to you. Um, but it became so when you were really, really young and that kind of stuck in the back of your, your memory. Yeah, it was um, one of these peculiar events that take place in your childhood that could either be traumatic or inspirational. <laughs> um, I visited the Wonder Bread factory. I'm going to call it a factory, not a bakery. And I saw a one, or sorry, a two-ton vat of dough. And that was, I think, I think, the first time in my life where I learned what a measurement equals. Yeah. That this is this equals two tons, and two tons is a lot of dough. Yeah. If you've never seen it, as a six-year-old, it's you know an especially large amount. So. Uh, I think pretty early on I learned what dough was and then my mother sort of trying to follow my first grade teacher's uh, efforts we we did something at home we did it was a failed attempt at bagels I mean we achieved making dozens and dozens of bagels in one sitting um, but they were 
I don't think we finished very many. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, seeing this Wonder Bread, you know, 2,000 pounds, a ton worth of dough sitting there that would eventually become something and be on the shelves and make sandwiches. Um, it was this drawing, this, this Zach dog drawing that you had made uh, aspirationally of what you wanted to be. Interestingly, I made that drawing before I ever visited the dough factory. Whoa. So this was some kind of premonition yeah. or imagination that I had. And it was, uh, I drew a, a picture of myself to the best of my ability, sort of self-portrait myself in a chef's coat, chef's hat, toque. And, uh, I had in one hand a wad of dough and in my inability to spell D O U G H, I spelled D O G trying to say dough. So Zach and Zach plus dough equals this image. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, lo and behold, 30 some years later, I'm, uh, actually holding dough and wearing a toque and, and people call you Zach dog or hopefully will dog. after yeah. this episode. <laughs> Talk to me about another image, this scene, uh, candlelight 1am in Oregon farm. Yeah. Especially quiet guy, uh, that, uh, taught me how to make bread at first. It was in a sheep's barn. The sheep had retired. They'd sold the sheep. So the barn was still there with still the hay, you know, it was a, essentially a dairy barn. Um, and it had all the bacterial activity that you'd expect from such a place and the smell, but, uh, it was used exclusively for fermenting dough. And this guy, uh, he would get there in the wee hours in the morning. I never even really knew what the magic was or what he was doing until, uh, I followed my nose. You see, uh, after every three nights or so, there'd be the smell of, of bread drifting through the air and it would come right into my room. So I was living on an organic farm and I had a little room in the, in the, the local house there and uh, the smell would come in through my open window and it drew me to come find out what he did to make that smell happen. And um, so, uh, at, you know, I walked in and, I, and I, he was a little bit surprised to see me and I said, I'd, I'd really like to watch what you're doing and, and learn about this. And he said, well, I, I don't really want to watch, I don't want you to watch me, but if you want to join in and, and help... I'm all for that. So I came in, and uh, little by little, I began to sort of cooperate and show up on time and learn how this three-day process worked in uh, nurturing that starter and getting the starter to begin to feed on new material and then giving it some, some sodium that would sort of control its pace and letting it rise little by little by little and not trying to rush it, and then the process of feeding the fire and then the second fire. You know, the first fire gets the oven pretty hot, but the second fire kind of tames it and gets it really, um, you know, uh, uh, it makes sure that the heat is expanded in all corners and there's no cold spots at all in the oven and maintains that heat with, with coals. And then baking with that and uh, learning how that's going to, um, you know, produce a loaf over the course of an hour or so. So he was baking these tubes because it was more convenient to fit them in the oven. <laughs> yeah. And then I later learned over time that historically people baked in large round forms, the same style, the same three day, um, fermentation method, but it would take, uh, it would take a, a lot longer for it to dry out being in a, in a rounded yeah. form. So that's where the Mish came from. I mean, talking about those Mishas and that communal aspect, um, I mean, I'm jumping ahead to scoring. Uh, okay. You know, with a little may or a sharp knife, you make uh -huh. that pattern on the top. But a lot of those patterns were distinctions of whose bread it was because, I mean, there really was one 
only one oven in, in any given town. Yes. And for people to go there with their fermented dough, you know, ready to fire it off, they had to be able to know whose it was once it came out of the oven. And still to this day that exists. Now for us, you know, we score on the top and you can easily distinguish different artisan bakeries throughout New York by the score of their breads and, of course, by the flavor. And um, if you go back to um, the the person that probably inspired most of American artisanal baking, Leonel Paulin, his bakery functions in a very interesting way where each baker mixes their dough from from water salt and flour all the way to the finished loaf. Each baker is responsible for 100% of the process of that loaf or of that batch of loaves. And uh, before it goes in the oven, they score the bottom with their initials. And so the customer never really even knows it's there. But if you look, if you flip over a Poilin loaf, you'll see the initials of your customer. And this way they're able to track if there's an error or if somebody forgot the salt or something happens, they can figure out from which batch it came and to, to eliminate any of those. That's awesome. The it's, it's like getting clothing and you see like inspected by number 87. Right. That's uh, after the show. I'm going to tell you about my one day at Poilin. Oh, um, great. Never yeah. even took a picture because my camera fogged up so quickly. But it was one of the most... Um, kind of pivotal moments in, in my you know, culinary life. And it was based around bread. Um, what's so funny about your life is, yes, you worked in Seattle with, what is it, William Lehman, yeah. um, who, who you know, went to the Coupe de Monde de la Boutchere. And won the Gold it. Cup and carried that on his shoulder. And you've worked in you know, Vegas, and you've worked in uh, Philly with Georges Perrier at Le Bec Finn. But yeah, yeah. Um, South America, of all places to travel around and experience bread, um, tell me, you know, from north to south, what that was like. Oh, wow. Well, if you like tortillas, it's a, it's a wonderful <laughs> region. Uh, yeah, as far as flatbreads go, it doesn't really get any better than that. I mean, I'm sure traveling uh, throughout uh, Far Asia and, and experiencing the world of chapati and naan is awesome. But tortillas of South America are, are as distinct as the breads of Europe, meaning that each location does it very differently in the varieties of corn, usually heirloom varieties of corn, they all taste very distinct. And though corn has shallow root systems, you do get some sense of terroir uh, based on the fact that some regions are, are volcanic and some are you know rather arid. But when it comes to baking wheat products, I would say that they're suffering deeply. And they have no idea how... <laughs> how bad it is. Uh, they, they eat it every day. It's kind of remarkable that there's little improvement that's happened over a long period of time. And what's further uh, surprising is that really good wheat is made, is grown in Argentina. So you'd expect the regions to be able to supply nice breads. But for some reason, even with the great Italian influence that came in through Chile, they're just making these hockey pucks with fork holes in them that taste a little bit like yeasted uh, uh Scones. Uh, it's kind of a. It, it's 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 depressing, but um, I had one experience while I was down there, which was surprising and um, and actually life changing. Uh, as a baker, as a natural born baker, I have the habit of not really sleeping so well. So I was in the middle of the night wandering about Potosi, Bolivia, and uh, I smelled real bread. I smelled something real and nice and I was not going to pass this up if, if this was somebody's house or wherever this was coming from I was going to find it so it took me a while but eventually I found this a little glowing hole in the wall 
that had bars, so there's no way to get through it. Just you, on the other on the other side of those bars, glassless bars, was a a, a woman dressed in full traje or, or local garb. Um, she looked like she was 193 years old. She was tending an oven, a, a old wood fired oven made out of mud, you know, adobe oven, um, and she was producing proper French petit pain. I mean, this was really good stuff. And it wasn't like blow your mind, incredible bread, but given the circumstances, this was unbelievable. And so I happened to be at that point in my life camping with a Frenchman. And I bought uh, a bag of breads from this woman and it probably cost me 20 cents to get, you know, a whole bunch. And, uh, I went back to the campsite. Frenchman was asleep, and I woke him up by throwing warm bread on his <laughs> on his camp. And he was he said no, and I said maybe. Oui. And then uh, we got up and we, we we enjoyed bread, and it was proper bread, and that flavor was distinct. So it's all throughout South America, the only great bread was one great bread, and that one stuck in my mind. I actually ended up putting that in my book because it was such a uh, pivotal point. I realized that. Upon eating that, I realized that if that the, there's only one thing that I really miss about North American and Western European culture, you know, otherwise I could stay down here in South America forever. I just love it down here. But there's no great bread, and bread is so important. So I turned around. I literally turned around and went back home. Let me read this. Uh, Peter Kaminsky, your co-author, did a yeah. wonderful job capturing your voice. But his description of, of Bien Cuit, or better known as Well Baked, was that the crust is... As dark as old mahogany, next comes a rasping sound as the knife slices into the crust like a woodsman handsaw on a piece of oak. I mean, it's just so beautiful, so telling, and so from the earth and the land. And we're going to take a quick break and talk about building a bread with those grains. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Zach Goper of Bien Quit. Um, Hi, everybody. <laughs> how's it going, Zach? Zach Dog, that That's is. Grains and flours. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when, when you make a bread, a lot of people like to start baking, and they're like, yeah, you get some AP flour, but what does AP really mean? Well, wow, this is a big question, Michael. AP well, literally means all purpose, and um, it serves that. It is it is util- utilizable for anything. But we get into um, big mills, and when I say big mills, I mean they're milling a million. And I've seen this with my own eyes, and this is true data. They they mill a million pounds of flour every single day. Those uh, that flour gets put into trains. The trains distribute the flour throughout various different packaging companies and you get a variety of different 
um, labels or brands that just wrap their paper around the very same flower, put it in the, in the supermarket and sell it at different prices. That's real. That's what happens. And that flower has been blended from millions and millions of acres, usually of commodity wheat, uh, farms and, uh, all that stuff, you know, it's thank God we have the opportunity to feed so many people, but we definitely are losing something in the the vastness of those uh, 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 sources from where the food's coming from. I mean, talk about depth and flavor. You're not going to hear the word, you know, like Danko rye, warthog, winter wheat, Glen Spring wheat. That that's not going to be in those packages, right? Yeah. I, with my strongest efforts to avoid throwing any brand under the bus, yeah. there are uh, most of them out there are uh, not, in fact, milled in house, and it's just part of a huge conglomerate of uh, commodity farms. And like I said, we're able to feed a lot of people, so it's got its place in the world. But when we talk about heirloom grains and we talk about crop rotation, this is a very different subject. So uh, you'll, if you get a little more involved with the book that I've made, that Peter and I made, um, you'll find that, that the, the recipes are designed that, firstly, you're in, you make one bread, it's nice enough that you're interested in making the next and the next and the next, and they're diverse enough that you really want to make all 50. So in the process of doing that, you're going to encounter um, using oat flour. Well, that's weird. Well, no, no, it's not that weird. It's a grain that we grind into a flour. Oat flour, buckwheat flour, rye flour, bar, malted barley flour. These things are um, really quite common in the baking world uh, you know, 400 years ago, but now have become uncommon due to commodity farming. But what is interesting about going through all these different grains and buckwheat and corn is that these are the grains that are used in crop rotation. So to support buying these grains, you're supporting crop rotation. By supporting crop rotation, you're supporting diversity in heirloom grains, you're supporting responsible farming, and ultimately you're supporting a potential future for uh, uh, grain farming uh, for our, our next few generations. So, I mean, going to Bienquid and buying Burro de Milo, Portuguese cornbread, uh -huh. is supporting that. It is. You're buying locally sourced wheat. You're buying, uh, depending on the, the price, uh, locally sourced corn. But more than it being local, you're, you're buying a diversity of grains, and that's the, the key to uh, crop rotation. These guys tend to go through five to seven um, different uh, grains that are grown each year on the same plot of soil. So seven years, to each year a different grain is grown on the same piece of soil. Um, and that's being done nationwide in all the, all the organic farms and responsible farms, biodiverse farms that are out there. And if you're, if you're purchasing a multitude of these things, by purchasing buckwheat one time from a variety of different sources, you have supported many different farms that are doing crop diversity. And this may sound like it's not such a big deal, but if you enjoy the terroir, the uniqueness of an heirloom grain or of a particular uh, a grain or flour that you're that's been ground into a you know, f l o w e r that's been ground into an f l o u r. Uh, if you enjoy what comes from fermenting that, then you, you really want to do keep supporting it because um, there's not much of it out there, and it's it's our dollars that uh, avail more uh, farmland. The the farmers that are doing the transitional process towards organic. 
um, they are more often than not leaning towards either directly heirloom varieties or blended heirloom, heirloom varieties. And, um, usually that stuff tends to taste really good because as you, you know, there's a recent uh, article about Steve Jones in the New York times. Uh, and Steve has been talking about this, of course, for 30 years plus that the, uh, the, these heirloom varieties had tremendous flavor. And there was a reason why many, many generations ago, we focused on continuing to grow these year after year. But, uh, over the course of time, um, more volume per acre, more yield per acre became more important than the flavor. So we were, we were breeding towards mass production versus breeding towards flavor. And now there seems to be a resurgence in old bread making techniques and pasta making and whatever you're going to use the grains for, mush, uh, porridge, yeah. whatever. Well, I think otherwise there would be uh, a need for cookbooks called Nothing But White Bread. You know, there, there's a distinction between each of your loaves, not we only... thought about that. Yeah, book, but, uh, <laughs> exactly. Decided against That's it. book number two. Maybe yeah. I'll shelf it for right now. But really, the distinction isn't just in the grains. I mean, it's also in these builds, these concepts you have behind them, and the seasonality of bread. Um, because what I think is so lovely is that you have a couple breads, one you know that has roasted potatoes in it, the uh, pan pugliese. Um, you have uh, corn, how do you say it? Corn, corn tuber brot. Corn tuber brot, um, <laughs> which is kind of a riff on that idea and using another tuber parsnips in this case um to make and fresh corn in addition to grain corn yeah but i mean it's showcasing this this greater community of you know grain and flour growers um that you know is so omnipresent in everything you do at bn quid and you know uh they should you know celebrate that as as much as you do we hope to i mean that's the the purpose of the book is to get people uh not only excited about using a variety of grains, but give them methods that really work. Uh, the recipe testing that went into this one was kind of ridiculous. Um, and we, we had to break it down as New Yorkers. Can I do this in a three by three foot countertop? And in many cases, that's the same countertop <laughs> that's shared with your olive oil and your saffron and your salt and anything else that's out there. Um, I mean, it's, it's eight easy steps, right? Just mixing, rolling and tucking, stretching and folding, shaping, final fermentation, scoring, baking, and cooling. We timed it. The amount of time that you actually touch the dough is maybe 20 minutes. Yeah. So it's really pretty easy, but I would recommend wearing an apron in the initial stages because yeah. it does get a little <laughs> bit dusty. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, it, this this book is so sensical um, in its applications. And the f- why are people f- afraid of p- baking bread? I think because they don't understand the alchemy of it. And they don't necessarily have to, although it is broken down in the simplest way that I think is available to both the professional who already know what I'm talking about and the novice who, as you said, are a little bit um, apprehensive to get started with it. It's enough information that, that A, we know it's accurate and B, it is available to anybody. But by giving people very um, clear tools and very well-tested and concise recipes. This is an opportunity for people who don't want to feed the baby every single day, a chance to have a sourdough starter, feed it once a week, keep it in a very cold environment, not not your freezer, keep it in your refrigerator. And then there's a process we we get into in depth in the book, but uh, you know, once a week you have to feed it. That's really easy. So you can have, you can go on vacation. You can, you can walk away from this. 
Um, but the nice thing is that you can come back to it and you can make something that is legitimately beautiful and balanced in acetic and lactic acid. And if you, you know, verge into some of the, uh, recipes that are, that are even more peculiar than you may have seen on the average bakery shelf, you'll find that they're, they're peculiar, not for the sake of getting attention, but because the flavor is so interesting and that I found these during experimentation and I, I honed them down to something that was available uh, to again to the professional and the novice at the same time, and uh, an array, a bouquet of flavors and aromas that happen through grain blending and slow fermentation. I mean, if people don't believe you, there is a thirty-hour sourdough in there. There is. Try the sixty-hour sourdough. The difference between those two things is is just phenomenal. And it's virtually the same. It's a very slight change in the recipe, and you're you're essentially just giving it another thirty hours, and that's. Uh, it's it's amazing what cold fermentation will do, and there are other recipes: the Lithuanian table bread, the buckwheat uh, sourdough buckwheat. These breads are so different from one another, um, and really speak to the to the source of of their starch. You know where that grain is coming from. With the Lithuanian, we're talking about using uh, malted rye syrup, and yes, I will tell you that is not easy to get in the United States. There are a couple sources, but it's funny because you go over to Eastern Europe and it's everywhere. That's just that's what people use instead of molasses. Well, I mean, it's worth a bread quest, which is actually one of my favorite parts of this book. Cause, that uh, was fun. That you, part was fun. You walk down the street, which I've known for years living in a neighborhood, Mazzola's. Oh, my God. Lard bread. Yeah, but you, you, think, it's, you think everything's going to be okay because it tastes good. So you just keep eating it. Yeah. And then you get to the, to the heel of the loaf and something's wrong. You have way too much pig fat flowing through your yeah. blood. <laughs> Which is, it's not a bad feeling every now and then, but um, I felt like that feeling plus the, the, just the joy of eating something that was so fatty and delicious. Wanted to do that, but we wanted to tie in, you know, some of the finer points of, of where this Sicilian lard bread concept came from and make a bread that works with it. Now, admittedly, I threw in buckwheat, which is not a Sicilian, it's not something they really grow down there, but of all the tests that I did, the the uh, the buckwheat really seemed to bring out the flavor of the ciccioli. And just figuring out how to make ciccioli, we had to. I mean, I went around and around trying to find this stuff, and finally, I, I was hitting so many walls. We had to call up Mario Batali and say, "Hey, dude, what what? How do you do this?" <laughs> and of course, he immediately had the answer. I mean, he, he he responded within five minutes. Yeah. And he was excited because he was like, well, nobody ever asked me that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I love that you involve the community, but what you are definitely going to gain from this book is a bigger community of burgeoning bread bakers, but also bourbon lovers. That is one of my favorite recipes mm-hmm. in the book that it's I'm so bread. excited to read about because, you know, hydration um, is nothing but a solution, you know, and usually people use water, but putting that little bit, that nip of alcohol in there mm-hmm. that helps, you know, um, possibly expand the dough quicker, um, you know, and it evaporates throughout the process, but leaves this resonant flavor of, of you know, Bourbon County. Absolutely. I mean, emphasized with um, form, sorry, emphasized with corn fermented on uh, two different levels. One, the, the pre-ferment has a lot of corn in it. And then the secondary fermentation involves adding more corn flour with the bourbon. So really, really, you've got three levels of, of, of corn fermentation that you're tasting in the finished product. And the score, I, I thought I'd add a, you've got sort of a checkered score in there. And the nice thing about that is that you can break it apart and share it with people the same way that you would with, you know, 
a bottle of bourbon. So one thing I want to kind of close out on is this pate fermente. Um, you know, happens in the white Pullman loaf, and it is about starting a bread with old bread. And I really think that you should start selling pate fermente at Bien Quites. <laughs> you know, for for bakers that want to actually use that and not don't have the access to all the day olds and the the croissants. Well. It- Actually, I give a, there's a recipe that's repeated over and over in the book, and they can start, anyone can start their own. Um, it's really just a, a very, any kind of old dough will do. So let, let me just simplify it. And you can take any single recipe from any book, from anything that you've read online, any recipe that's got either wild yeast or commercial yeast in it, and it's got to have yeast, and then ferment it. Take a little chunk of that dough, set it aside, let it sit at room temperature for four to six hours. All of a sudden, you've got pat fermente that you can now add to another dough, and you can take a piece of that dough, set it aside, and so on and so forth, day after day. And this is going to create, over time, its own bacterial culture, and it's going to keep the same yeast strain, so you're going to have the same... um, nuances of alcohol but you're going to get these other byproducts these other nuances that are are just beautiful and over the course of time just like any good sourdough starter it's going to become more solidified more dependable and um as long as you you know maintain your temperatures more delicious and if you don't have the time you always have bien cuit thank yeah, you zary come by anytime <laughs> thank you very very much zach for being on and go out get bien cuit the art of bread by zach gulper and peter kaminsky right now and start that sourdough starter you need 24 days minimum minimum <laughs> you've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.org i'm your host michael harlan turkel hoping to have you back here next tuesday at three cheers thanks for listening to this program on heritage radio network.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.